You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Who are you and what do you make for a living? Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Lindsay Rousseau. I am an actor, voiceover actor, host, uh, content creator. Uh, most of my work is voiceover. And then I also host a weekly geek talk show on YouTube called The Rollout. So uh, I also have written some short films and feature films, uh, dabbled in you know producing a little bit, have a short film in development right now. I'm um, uh, pitching around a pilot that I wrote. So, uh, looking to get that sold. So yeah, a little bit of the hyphenates as we like to call ourselves in the industry. We <laughs> are, we are hyphenates. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When I was being introduced to you, um, I, I, I couldn't help but think how lazy you sounded. You had nothing going on. You never were, you were, you were just you know, sitting around getting high, no, just nothing. watching Star Wars. No. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Like all those people who were like, oh man, COVID <laughs> extended vacation. And I'm just like, I was busier during all of this than I think I've been in years. Some of it was self-inflicted. I won't lie. I was like, oh, I'm not driving around town to audition. Let's write a feature film. <laughs> but in, in addition to to features and shorts and theater and acting and everything else, you also, you have a huge part uh, of you that, that has to do with, with action and stunts and motion uh-huh. capture, right? Yeah, yeah. I kind of... Um... I won't say I fell into that. You know, um, before I moved to LA, I tangentially knew what mocap was. You know, of course, I'd seen Lord of the Rings and I knew, you know, what Gollum was. And, um, you know, I I had been a video gamer for a while, but never really thought, you know, mocap was still... it, It had been done for decades, but not a lot of people talked about it. And so it wasn't until I moved to LA... And because I do so much voiceover and subsequently so much, so many video games, uh, ended up finding about this world of motion capture. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Um, my brother is a professional stuntman. He's been in the city for well over 10 years. So of course I understood the stunt industry, um, and knew, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to go straight up stunt performer because my background is definitely more in performing in, in the arts. Um, but you know, those action elements have always been a part of me. You know, I do extensive martial arts training and sword fighting. I'm an army Iraq war combat veteran. So firearms and, um, you know, all different types of weapons is just something that I've done for fun and really enjoyed doing. And finally found a niche where all of that could apply. And I'm not actually jumping 30 stories down and setting myself (laughs) on fire. Um, you know, so that being said, I would not turn down stunt work if it comes my way. But, uh, you know, uh, that's that's kind of how that came about. Right. And I mean, it, it, it's a huge part of, of what's just generally called acting today anyway. Like motion capture is involved in absolutely every film that you see, Everything. certainly blockbuster styles and stuff. And, and even more so, I guess, with all of the, you know, Mandalorian style, you know, uh, VR type backgrounds and things like that. This is all being evolved, right? Yeah. And and it's interesting. A lot of people think that this is like a new technology, but video games have been using motion capture for 20, 30 years now. Um, It's just that it's gotten better and it's gotten cheaper. You know, you now, I mean, the motion capture stages, you know, with the suits and the the markers, you know, the little ping pong balls, people like that's still the norm, but like you can get what are called inertial suits, which are essentially body suits that have built in uh, sensors on the suit that feed directly back to the computer. And you can buy those and do those in your house, you know, for 
the the cheapest is like twenty five hundred to five thousand dollars. The most expensive are about thirty forty thousand. But you know, I've talked to indie game developers who were like, "Yeah, I just bought one of those suits so I could previs in my house." And I was like, "So you know, it's 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 gotten a lot more accessible to people." Um, and here in LA, we've got gosh, so many motion capture stages from the very top tier, you know, like Sony, PlayStation, um, all the way down to kind of indie mocap houses that just rent out to, to different game companies. And obviously up in Canada, you know, there's some real big stages up there, you know, with Ubisoft being up there um, and a couple other big game companies. And then, of course, you have the stories of Avatar with James Cameron creating an entire motion capture, you know, village and underwater motion capture. So it's insane to see where the technology has gone. I want to look all the way back for a second here because... yeah. I want to figure out exactly how you got to where you got. <laughs> me too. Because <laughs> you, you're somebody who seemed, you, you even put me to shame. I've been a musician. I've been, uh, you know, a, a TV producer, a writer, a director, and all this. I, and most people think I'm, I, I've gotten, gone through a lot of different thing, iterations. But where does your start? You, you started, what, as a kid in theater, I'm assuming, in school? Is that how you got your start? Yeah, I started. I was that theater music geek. You know, I started on the piano when I was five was singing as soon as I could open my mouth. Um, I think I did my first stage performance. Uh, it was a variety show for Bob McGrath, who was one of the original hosts of Sesame Street. He came to the town where I was living uh, on Cape Cod and held open auditions. Uh, and the dance studio was out at the time. You know, we had open auditions and I did this rendition of It's a Hard Knock Life. Um, I was super little. Um, and then, you know, start and was lucky I was at schools that had really good theater and music departments. So, you know, I started doing stage productions at a very young age and then was a competitive musician. You know, I was flute and piccolo and symphony and orchestra and did all state band and all state choir and all those competitions and went to music and theater camps every year. Um, but then, you know, I also was the overachiever who was, you know, in all the honors classes and AP classes. And so academics were also very important to me. So, you know, while I was doing marching band and, and theater and everything, you know, I was also, so I did end up going uh, I did not, I was going to go to a conservatory, but uh, opted to go to a liberal arts university instead where I could pursue both uh, academia and my music as well, which is what I did. I went to William and Mary um, and my undergrad was sociology and cultural anthropology with an undeclared secondary minor in music. I uh, trained in opera while I was there. Uh, and then, you know, kind of just like life kind of blew up in my face and I didn't really know as, as it is, you know, people fall on hard times. Um, you know, I, I did very well in college. You know, I was an activist. I was elected student body president. Um, but then life circumstances happened and I kind of found myself in a, in a tough spot. And, uh, it, at the time it looked like the army was really the only way I could get out of it. And so even though I'd been an activist and opposed the, the war in Iraq and went on hunger strikes and everything, uh, I enlisted and, um, ended up being a combat photographer and public affairs sergeant in the 101st Airborne Division, uh, deployed to Iraq from 2005 to 2006 uh, documenting combat and humanitarian operations. So that was, that was a, that was a fun year. Um, I, I, I lived, I survived obviously. So that's, that's a, that's a success for me. Um, and then got out, you know, as a lot of vets do, you know, you're just like, God, what do I do with my life now? It's like, well, you know, I kind of have been doing this journalism thing and this, you know, well, let's do that. And so I applied to, 
bunch of universities for grad school. I wasn't sure yet. So I applied to international relations programs and also journalism programs and was accepted to UC Berkeley for their graduate journalism school. And I'd always wanted to go to Berkeley. So I was like, you know what? Let's do that. Um, So ended up driving cross country from tennis or Fort Campbell, Kentucky to to Berkeley. And um, yeah, pursued my master's degree there and was this associate producer for PBS Frontline, which had a partnership with the university. Uh, I was a Carnegie Fellow for ABC News um, with their investigative unit for a summer. Um, And then once I graduated, you know, I'd spent about a year and a half on this really, really in-depth investigative story. Um, I'd worked on a lot of different investigations, but this one I'd spent about a year and a half, uh, you know, researching and interviewing um, women and groups uh, as it pertains to the sexual assault of female farm workers. Um, And by the time I got to all of that and finished it, um, I realized that between the army and combat and graduate school and all of this, everything, it was just really taking a toll on me physically and emotionally. And I just was not healthy. Uh, you know, I wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't eating right. And I realized I needed to make a change in my life. And I realized, you know, the arts was the only time I was really like truly happy. Uh, so I decided to quit journalism and went back to theater. Um, and did that for about six years in San Francisco, working as, you know, I got my substitute teaching certification. So I was teaching school on a daily basis and I was teaching singing lessons and I was uh, working as a, you know, for a brand ambassador for a granola bar company and all these other jobs to pay the bills while trying to be a stage actor and then realizing that's not the most lucrative industry to be in. <laughs> and yet it is one of the most expensive cities to live in. You know, but uh, you know, I moved out there in 2008 before the tech companies moved in, so it was a little more reasonable there. I was in a great (laughs) rent-controlled apartment, but yeah, when the tech companies started moving in 2013, 2015, it started getting bad, and I realized I needed to make a change, and so I I transitioned uh, into voiceover and on camera. um, Found much more success in the VO world. On camera is kind of this—I don't know—it's it's it's a it's a tougher nut to crack. and then made the move to LA in uh, middle of 2016, and have been here ever since. So that's that's the that's the Cliff Notes version of my journey. <laughs> yes, yeah, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's like you haven't really done much. You're pretty lazy. No, yeah, like no, no. I mean, I, I've it's had a boring people be like, story that yeah, nobody really like, gives a shit about. That's no. basically yeah. Yeah, no, I've had people be like, are you 70? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I was going to be really uncouth and ask you how old you were at one point, like before we started, just because I was like, I don't understand. How have you done this many things? <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense. But tell me about tell me about shifting over to voice work for a second, because I'm curious how you actually got into it. Like, was there a yeah. big break? Was there a moment where you thought, oh, OK, you know, I can make a run at this? Yeah, so uh, there was a transition period. So I was, I was, uh, I was still doing theater, um, and uh, I was with this uh, uh, this theater troupe, uh, this group of we were three women called her Rebel Highness, and we dressed up in Victorian clothing and put on these original musical productions and traveled around doing that. It was very we we competed for America's Got Talent one year. That was fun. Did you make it far in that? No, no. no I think we showed up on stage and people were like. We don't know what to do with this. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so the 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 husband of the woman who founded that group um was a sound designer for video games. And, you know, like I said, I was a gamer. and you know, i was I was kind of i was I was actually playing through Mass Effect at the time. 
And I was playing as Femme Shepherd. Female Shepherd is the only way you should play that video game um, because <laughs> Jennifer Hale is an icon in the voiceover world. She is just, she has the career that I would aspire to even emulate half of. Um, she's one of the most brilliant, talented performers and um, I think holds the Guinness World Record for female performer who's been in the most video games. Anyways, if you don't know who she is, please look her up. You've heard her. Um, and I had this realization. I was like, you know what? This is something I think I would like to do. I, I, I think I would be good at. So I talked to him and was like, hey, you know, I love theater, but tell me more about this voiceover thing. And he was so gracious. Um, you know, he uh, he put me in touch with the agency that he went through for for casting for his video games. Um, so he got me a meeting with, with an agent um, in San Francisco uh, who was a lovely, lovely human being who was like, you know what? I like your resume. You've got a strong acting background. You know, you've been doing this for 20 years. You've trained at Berkeley Rep and ACT. Um, but, you know, uh, voiceover is a little different. So, you know, there's a great voiceover studio here in, in the Bay Area. Start training there and I'll take you on. Um, and, you know, my friend's husband, he helped produce my demo reels originally. You know, we we, we kind of self-produced those. And, and that's where I got my start. Um, and... Uh, was still doing theater, you know, and then, so they were a boutique agency. So they also took me on for on-camera work as well. But I definitely noticed I was having more success with VO. And then it got to the point where theater was starting to conflict with VO and on-camera work. And I finally had to make the decision, um, you know what, I think, I think theater is going to have to take a back seat for now. Um, and so I started doing that and probably like 2013, I guess, uh, started really doing voiceover, uh, fully committed, um, with a few on-camera jobs here and there. Um, yeah. And then it just kind of snowballed from there, you know, lots and lots of training, so much training. You know, I was at the school for, for like three years or so. And then I, um, I actually started commuting down to LA every weekend for, for six months before I moved down here, taking classes down here, workshops, getting to know people. Um, and uh, then finally decided, you know what, I think it's, I think it's time to make the move. What is the role of, of some of the training that you've had? I mean, has that had a big impact? Did you have to learn? I mean, somebody who spent so many years in theater and already acting and, and, and teaching themselves what were you learning and picking up in some of these some of these classes? Yeah, so it's 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 really interesting. Voiceover tends to not get a lot of respect, which is unfortunate because I do think it is actually one of the hardest things in the industry to do. Um, because acting is acting, obviously. Like if you have a strong core acting foundation, you you know it's it's like playing the piano and learning music or knowing ballet and picking up all other dances. Like if you've got that core acting foundation, that is going to serve you really well because it's a lot harder to teach people how to act than it is to teach them how to tweak their performances for a new medium. And obviously with entertainment, it's like the way you perform on stage is not the way you perform in front of the camera, is not the way you perform in front of the microphone. So, you know, uh, and voiceover encompasses just a wide swath of everything. Like in order to make a living in this day and age as a voice actor, you have to be able to do everything. The days of just doing animation are long gone. I mean, that hasn't been a thing since probably, you know, since, well, definitely since streaming became a thing because, um, you know, it, it, 
there's there's less and less of that lucrative network television that pays really great residuals. So, you know, classes in commercials and narration and promo and of course video games and animation and you know, trends are constantly changing and you know, the difference between uh, performing for radio spots and television spots and now digital spots. Um, so you're you're constantly having to stay on the top of your game because unfortunately with with online now opening it up to all over the country, it's like you're no longer just competing with the talent living in LA. You're now competing with people living all over the country, living all over the world. You know, it's like I have agents and I think like 15 different regions. Um, so it has become much more competitive. Um, but there's also a lot more work out there. But because of that, because of the competition, you're constantly having to stay on the top of your game. And so I have never not been in a class or a workshop, or now I'm mostly with private coaches um, and, you know, workout groups and such. But, uh, and, and, you know, then the, the networking aspect of it. But people don't, the average person, even even on-camera actors, I have this conversation, they don't understand how much training goes into learning how to sound like a quote-unquote real person behind the mic. Because you <laughs> see that all the time. We don't want actors. We don't want voiceover actors, no announcers, real person. And I'm like, first of all, no one sounded like that since the early 90s. So come on, brands, uh, ad agencies. But it's like, you know, because I've coached, uh, you know, especially with COVID, a lot of on-camera workers being out of work being like, hey, Lindsay, what's this voiceover thing? How do I get into it? And I'm just like, ooh. And so I've coached some of them and it's like, it's like pulling teeth sometimes because it's not just just step behind the mic and you talk. You know, it's like there ha- there's so much nuance because the mic doesn't lie. It picks up on everything and you're having to create these worlds for yourself. You don't have anyone to play off of. And even if you're doing a spot for McDonald's or LinkedIn or AAA, you know, you still have to connect to that copy and make that a genuine, real grounded performance, you know, within this kind of sort of heightened reality um, that is commercial copy. But commercials have changed so much. You know, in the 80s and 90s, you had those big, bold announcers, but millennials and Gen Zers don't like being sold anything. So they don't want their commercials to sound like you're selling them stuff. So you have to know how to sell them stuff without sounding like you're selling them stuff. Um, And then, of course, you get into the fun stuff, for which is, you know, video games and animation, which is the hardest thing in the industry to break into. You know, I'm still trying to figure out this animation game. And you know, I have friends who've never done animation video games in their life and they wait, they make way more money than I do because, you know, commercials are where the money is. Promo is where the money is. So why do video games sort of occupy this yeah. high level? Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, video games don't pay as much as people think they do. Unless, of course, you're the celebrity. T- and unfortunately, video games and animation have been doing this. This has been the trend over the past 10 years is like now it's celebrities getting the really good big roles. You know, it's no longer most of us rank and file voice actors were the utility players, were the support characters, all the miscellaneous background voices and NPCs and such. Um, so those celebrities are getting paid bank. Um, and even some of the top tier voice actors who've been at this for, who got into the industry 20, 30 years ago, like Jen Hales, definitely Laura Bailey are making a lot more than I am, you know. Um, but still within that SAG, you know, the union scale, um, but there's no residuals for video games. So, you know, it it is a very... It, and that's where the disconnect is in that video games now can bring in more money than, 
a feature film. Um, you know, yeah, well, the video game industry far outstrips Hollywood at this point. Far, I mean, I think Marvel's the only thing that can like right. that still outperforms video games. But uh, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. But as we've seen in the news a lot with you know a lot of the lawsuits, it's like, well, that doesn't trickle down to your coders and your programmers and your you know your animators who are having to crunch and you know, and then same with the voice actors. Like we get paid scale, which is great. Um, but we're, we're not making millions of dollars. Is it just a, it's just literally by session. That's it. Yep. Yep. In terms of the animation, in terms of the video games and things like that, you're getting, you're doing single sessions or you're doing like, you know, let's say five or six, you're, you're, you're getting. Yeah. It depends on the game. Sometimes it's a single session. You know, I've had games where like, I'm working on a game right now. I think I've already done seven sessions for them, but the game doesn't come out for another year or two. Yeah. How long is a session? Uh, any two to four hours, two to four hours. And, and you've got like seven sessions on this and then that's it. You're, you're literally being paid for your time at scale, which is good. Right. I mean, that's that, you know, that's, that's a good, that's what your union fights for. That's what they, that's what they've set up for you and stuff. But unlike TV land or film land, you know, specifically commercial land where you get like 13 weeks of residual pay every time they they cycle, there's nothing in place for that. No, there's nothing we get uh, now because of the video game strike. So, so here in LA, we did have a video game strike a couple years ago. And one of the things, unfortunately, residuals did not happen. We tried, we do get like bonuses now for multiple sessions. If we do multiple sessions for a game, we get a bonus. It's not a huge amount of money. Um, But this is actually the same debate we're having in the world of streaming and that streaming had no residuals. Um, So there now is kind of a new streaming contract in place. You know, Netflix has kind of been leading the way on that. We're now you get an upfront like 50% residual buyout, which hypothetically is more than you would make. But if you were just getting regular residuals, but the reality is it still doesn't compare to network television, which is ironic considering network television is kind of dying. Yeah, but the like my, way down. My so. my co-stars on NCIS and C- and SEAL team have paid me far more than any voiceover job I've done because I continue to get residual checks for that, even though no one will remember me from being on those shows. <laughs> and they'll remember me as starring in Transformers. And it's like... Nope, my one word line on, you know, on SEAL Team paid me a lot more than that because it was network television. And then it gets syndicated and then it gets sold overseas. And, you know, it, it but it's a really changing industry. And unfortunately, um, early on, the powers that be did they underestimated what's what was gonna happen with streaming. They really did. You know, now celebs are getting big upfront deals when it comes to streaming. They're getting multi-million dollar paychecks up front. But and this was the same thing with the uh, with the Yahtzee, which just almost had a strike. It's the same thing. It's like we're getting our lowest pay from the streaming services, and they're making the most money. So it's it's a really interesting time right now. Yeah, interesting is a good way to put it. Yeah, Fucked up yeah, is yeah, another yeah. way to put it. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but you know, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is television's become completely a legacy industry, oh, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's I mean, something that has been. You know, it, it was limited unto itself. It seemed limitless, I guess, when, when there was nothing else available. But the reality is, is when you look at what can be done with streaming, with any of the uh, social media platforms and all of the different yeah. iterations thereof, there's an endless amount of content yeah. and platform and iteration out there. And the truth is, is television is now just one really yeah. honestly antiquated one. Well, I mean, and they don't. They don't have the budgets either. I mean, uh, this was a, there was an article about this recently talking about, you know, you've got like on the CW, you have all the Arrowverse, the DC shows on the CW, Supergirl, Batwoman, you know, and then on now uh, HBO Max, you have 
Titans and Doom Patrol, who are also DC properties. And you look at the production value between Titans and Doom Patrol and, you know, Batwoman, and it's like, it, it is night and day. So it's like, why would I watch these shows when, like, these are far superior? Um, and streaming is just pumped in twice the amount of money. Plus they, they record everything all at once. Whereas network television is still recording, you know, each one episode a week, you know, they're recording ongoing as opposed to recording all at once and dropping, you know, so, uh, you can, you, your people are now starting to see, Ooh, yeah. Just the production, you know, and, and with Disney plus it's like, people have gotten used to seeing the big screen on the small screen. I mean, the Mandalorian changed everything and was like, Oh, Oh, we can do this with television. Well, how is, you know, I don't know, uh, CSI supposed to compare with, with that, you know, or whatever. Well, they got Mark Harmon. I mean, come on. Not anymore. No. He, no. Be, he, he beats Mark Hamill. Mark Harmon over Mark <laughs> Hamill. <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to have some very interesting comments to that phrase. <laughs> so as somebody who is, to put it mildly, very motivated and very creative, <laughs> um, all of this creativity, all of this output. Yeah. I mean, regardless of a paycheck, what does it do for you? Because there's lots of easier ways to yeah. make a paycheck. Oh, and like I said, I I gave up essentially two, three careers to come back to this life. You know, it's like I have a master's degree in journalism from, I would say, the number one journalism school in America. Columbia might argue that. You know, I was very successful in undergrad. There was a lot of ways, routes I could have taken in life. You know, I almost went the lawyer route. I almost went the human rights. You know, there's a lot of different things I could have done. Hell, I could have stayed in the army. I mean, I was medically just discharged, so that wouldn't have been an option. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, I could have, with my background, could have easily, maybe not easily, but I could have definitely pursued other, other venues. But like I said, you know, I, I had this aha moment when I was, when I was finishing up this project, which was my master's thesis, which, uh, ended up being produced in a, for the center for investigative reporting and was later turned into a PBS frontline documentary. And it was just like, like I said, it was taking its toll on my mental health and and my regular health and, and journalism's not that stable of a career environment either. Mm Um, you know, and I, I, I did think about like, oh, maybe I should go to law school and was just like, no, I'm, I'm not putting my, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I was looking at like human rights law, but, right. uh, yeah. Um, you know, so I would have been hugely in debt with, you know, very little paycheck, but you would have slept uh, but, well at night. Yeah. Yeah. I would have slept well. Um, but for me, I realized that, you know, with, with dealing with, with, with mental health issues and, you know, having been in therapy for many, many years, I, I, I am very cognizant of how important mental and physical health is and well-being, and that I could not keep going down the path that I was going. Something needed to change, um, and so I decided to go into a field that was very unstable, but very satisfying um, because it allowed me to express that artistic side of myself. Um, and, you know, it, it was not a nine to five. It, uh, you know, especially now here in LA, it's like, I'll have days where I have nothing to do. And then I'll have days where it's like back-to-back sessions and I'm driving all over LA. You know, it's, 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 it's a slightly unpredictable, but for me that works and that doesn't work for everybody. Some people absolutely need that stability and, um, you know, that structure. Um, and so there, and there are challenges with trying to 
impose your own structure and so forth. But well, tell me, like, what is the most challenging part about being a voice actor and, for that matter, all of the other slashies that you are? Yeah. So with the entertainment industry in general, from the performer side of things, it's that it never stops. It's always a grind. There's always more you can be doing. No matter how much you're doing, there's always more you could be, should be doing. Um, because there's no easy way to, quote unquote, break into this industry and to to find stability and success in it. Um, on the performing side of things, it's because, you know, unless you are lucky enough to get to that level with the the golden words offer only, um, you know, I'll have days where I have four hours worth of auditions that I have to do. And it's like every audition's an opportunity. So if I'm not constantly auditioning, constantly training to be as competitive as possible with those auditions, constantly trying to network with people, reach out to studios, reach out to directors, casting directors, producers, writers, game developers. It's like, um, that's, that's the hard part for me is because I'm very much, like you said, I'm very proactive. I'm very much a doer. And so when I met with like roadblocks where it's like, you know, like with the show I'm trying to sell, I'm like, I have literally exhausted every avenue I can exhaust to try and get this in front of someone. What do I do now? Um, and, uh, you know, and then luckily I had a, had a meeting with, with, uh, one of my women in film mentors yesterday and she brought up some ideas I hadn't even thought about. So now I'm going to pursue that, but it's like, <sighs> unfortunately you can't be passive if you're wanting to pursue this type of work. You can't just sit around waiting for your agent to send you auditions, if you even have an agent. I mean, I know people who make a living doing this and don't have agents. Um, you know, it's it, the onus is very much on you to procure your own work or to at least be as competitive as possible when the work does come to you, either through agents or direct connections or whatever. Yeah. Well, tell me about networking. I mean, you said you 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 spent a lot of your time reaching out, but how are you reaching out? I mean, it, it, it's been COVID, <sighs> it's been lockdown. Yeah. Even on a normal time, it's not like you just have access to people, no, even if there isn't it's... a pandemic. How do you do it? How do you find these people? You know what? If you've got suggestions, I'm open. Um, <laughs> well, there's stalking. I, there's I, yeah, mm, that's yeah, it. That's and I, I uh, and you know what? Again, this is another one. I know people that do this so differently. I I have friends who are all about social media. They're constantly reaching out to people on Twitter, um, things like that. You know, um, and uh, for me, I I've done a bit of reaching out on LinkedIn and had some success doing that. Um, you know, reaching out to different producers and, and, you know, things. The hard thing about this industry, especially being an actor is like people, there's, there's a lot of times this, this belief that people only contact you in LA if you want something from them. So it is very hard to navigate and, and develop genuine friendships and relationships because there is always kind of that, oh, oh, I'm reaching out to this director. Well, you must want a job or something. It's like, no, I actually am really interested in how you got to where you are and what you did. Could you just tell me? Um, like, you know, but there are those, I mean, and I, you hear those stories of actors who reach out and were like, I'm the next lead in this Marvel film. You should cast me and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, mm, no. Um, cause people crave human interaction. They, they crave human connection. And, um, it is that fine line of, of, trying to connect with people and knowing that this industry is built on relationships, but also doing it in a way that is genuine and not gross and not self-centered. 
Um, Is that hard for a lot of actors? I mean, I, I don't mean to paint you into a corner here or other actors I know, but like a lot of them are considered self-centered, right? I mean, that's kind of the gist. And there's a reason for it because a lot of them are. Um, and <laughs> I, I only say this because I, you know, I have friends who are directors and casting directors who have told me stories of like talent who email them literally every week. Like, hey, I'm here. Hey, cast me, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, I finally had to block them or, you know, had to block an actor on social media for constantly messaging them. I have heard that people have gotten a little stocky and, you know, followed people on social media and figured out what bars they're at and showing up at those bars. And um, that side of the industry is actually very hard for me because I am not the type of person that likes to ask people for anything. You know, I'm, I was raised to work hard and, and do my job and, do everything I can to be the best that I can. But, you know, you, you do finally realize, especially in the city in LA that at the end of the day, so much of people's success is based on relationships and not talent. It's based on who, you know, not your skill. Um, so, you know, kind of the side of that is like, well, surround yourself with good people and try and make your own content, which is not easy because everything costs money. Um, and then maybe someone will see that and want to hire you and, you know, but it's the long game. Like, I think they say the average person who moves to LA burns out in two years and it takes about 10 years to, to, to get to a point where you're kind of finally established or at least able to pay your bills. I was lucky. I was able to finally, you know, and I worked a lot of side jobs. I was broke for, for a very long time and was working four or five jobs, um, was finally able to quit all those side jobs three years ago, two, three years ago, which was terrifying, but also liberating at the same time to be like, oh, I'm paying my bills, doing what I love. This is great. (laughs) Um, But you can't expect success overnight. You can't. And you just have to stay. You have to stay in there. It's a long game. And I just planned to outlast everyone. That's, That's my goal. What does success look like for you? At the end of the day, what's the ultimate goal? Honestly, to pay my bills. I, I think that is the baseline of success in this industry, to be able to say, I am able to make a living as a performer um, without side jobs. You know, uh, I mean, I'm not saying like, oh, okay, if you're writing on the side or doing production work or something like that, I'm meaning like, you know, my granola bar company and all of that. Um, that to me is the baseline of success. If that's where I stay with my career and I just, for the rest next 30, 40 years, just make a living. Um, I'm okay with that. Now, would it be nice to like book that role and all of a sudden your name kind of pops up and people know who you are? That's the icing on the cake. Um, Because everybody, there's a part of them that wants that. But I will say, if you're coming to the city to become a star, good luck. Because it is 0.001% of people that that happens to, especially in voiceover. You know, it's like, Again, nowadays, the, the, the big roles are going to on-camera celebrities. They're now even going to social media influencers. Um, but, you know, where that could be one or two days of recording, like I said, I've got this one game I just keep getting called back in for because they need more NPCs. And it's like, cool, I'm just going to be hustling. If I'm a utility player, great. I come in, I do my job, I go home and um, play with swords. But uh, uh, yeah. That, that, I mean, yes, everybody would love to be known for something. Um, and of course, that's something you constantly strive for. But I think if you have realistic expectations, it's like, you know what? 
I enjoy the work that I'm doing and I'm able to make a living doing it, that's that's not a bad gig. Yeah, especially with VO, it's like, oh, I get to kind of maybe be in my pajamas and record in my booth right now. And uh, oh, I, I just did a one-hour session that's going to pay me enough for the next six months of rent. Awesome. So I got to ask, give me your best in a world. I need that. Your best in a world. In a world, we come to a place where humans have found themselves at war with machines. Who will persevere tonight? I love it. That was excellent. It's mo- it, that, that, we, we can get into a whole conversation <laughs> about uh, the amount of work for men compared to women in this industry. But uh, <laughs> Well, there's a whole movie about it, right? I believe it's called sure, In a World. Yeah, trailer voices are still... 99% males. So. In a world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a world. And that is that is one guy. That is he he is the he is the known guy for all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and there's a lot of companies that have, you know, their their spokes voice. Well, yeah. So prom- promo work, which is something I, I continue to train in extensively because it is it can be one of the most lucrative parts of the voiceover industry. It's, especially if we're talking network television. Um, again, the landscape has changed. There's not as much promo. on. We don't see really promo on streaming and stuff like that. But like those people that are like, tonight on NCS, a woman chased from her childhood home, blah, blah, blah. Like those promo voices, that is, that's a full-time gig, first of all. And it can be one of the best paying jobs in this industry because you are getting paid for every one of those spots. You're getting residuals on every one of those spots. Um, so a lot of people strive for that. It's one of the smallest parts of the industry. It's very difficult to break in because you have a lot of the same people just get rotated around the different networks to, to do the different things. But I, w- I was able to do a bit of promo work for the Lifetime Network for a while, um, which was which was a lot of fun. But you're kind of on call for that too because it's like, hey, uh, we need you at 9 p.m. tonight to record all the bumpers for The Tonight Show or you know the people that, that do promo full-time uh, like they can't take vacations now. They own really nice houses, but it's hard for them to take a vacation. <laughs> right. Well, Lindsay, where can people find out a little bit more about you? Yeah, uh, you can find me. You can check out my website, lindsayrousseau.com. No D, uh, French spelling, not uh, Italian. Uh, you can find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Lindsay Rousseau, Facebook as well. Um, like I said, I host a weekly geek talk show called The Rollout on YouTube. So you can find me there. We drop new episodes every Friday at noon Pacific. Um, and I occasionally pop up on friends' Twitch streams. I stream with the Charismatic Voice once a month on her D&D stream and uh, have a new podcast in the works right now for Lawful Stupid RPG, new D&D Dragonlance podcast. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and feel free if you have questions or anything, reach out to me. I'm pretty quick at responding to like Twitter messages and Instagram messages if I see them. Um, then my social media guys like, Lindsay, you have a message. You need to answer this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing how you make a living. Yeah, this was great. So much fun. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.